but we spend a thousand hours of time with the right company that is either just launching or in that sort of mode of transformation. And we could fundamentally change their destiny. And as a result of that, um, change their relationship with the people that they're going to interact with. You better think, think, think Welcome to the Creative Leadership Podcast. My name is Mark. And my name is Rod. And today we talk to Mo about an outsider looking in and why humanity is the way it is. Tell us the story of your name. Um, so I go by Mo Dollywall, um, but that's more like my brand. It's not really like my name. Uh, my name is actually Manminder Singh Dalyal, or Manminder Singh Dollywall. That's how it's pronounced. Um, my dad actually came up with my name by concatenating a couple of terms. Uh, Inder or Indra is like this uh, ruler of the world, ruler of all things. And Mun is kind of like a, it's no direct translation, but it kind of means heart and soul. So he came up with a concatenation of Man Mayandar, meaning that in my heart resides this all-powerful ruler. Yeah. And, and where did Mo uh, oh, man. evolve? Uh, in, or how did it, that evolve into Mo? Uh, Mo was actually an insult uh, received by uh, me in the fifth grade by some older kids. Not the most imaginative insult uh, ever. They just kind of came up to me and said, Haha, you're Mo. And being a young, stupid kid, I was like, stop it. And of course, when you tell young kids to stop something... It's stuck. Yeah. Decades later, <laughs> I am Mo Dolly Wall. <laughs> and um, what is it you do? Um, if you could create your business card right now, what would it say? Mm-hmm. Well, it says um, Director of Strategy. Uh, which is a awesome uh, title because it implies that you uh, do something specific, uh, but in fact, it's a grab bag of like all sorts of random shit. So <laughs> as director of strategy at a creative agency, um, I work with clients to help them sort of identify what they're there for, uh, who they're there for, and then how to kind of connect those things um, using a variety of means that covers everything from design to communications to technology. And in what and what fields would that be in? Um, all all over actually. Um, the um, my company Skyrocket. It's like a it's like an expression of I think my own sort of uh, like nature. Like I'm, I'm a bit of a dilettante, so I'm like all over the place. So we don't focus in on like any industry, any vertical, and that was kind of by design. So we just focus in on like a stage of company. So we like working with new ventures um, because we like helping things get launched into the world. And we like working with like really old ass companies that are looking for reinvention, new relevance. Um, so we like going in there and helping them kind of re uh, rediscover why they started in the first place and how to reconnect with some with some new audiences. So that's covered everything from like old wealth management companies that have been around for decades. It's covered some consumer brands. Um, lately, it's been like blockchain startups, cannabis companies. So. A lot of variety, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah that's quite different from yeah. <laughs> wealth management to cannabis. Yeah, yeah a little bit. <laughs> and uh, could you give us three reasons and very short bullet points, like why you do what you do, and we'll pick one of them. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think I like building things. So in some ways, uh, my company and my work kind of feels like a large-scale, real-world version of Lego for adults. 
So I think I like, you know, building things is, is enjoyable to me. Um, I think I like, um, personally, um, having some meaning and some relevance in the world. So I think when I can plug in with people or companies um, and help them kind of like, you know, 10x their own impact, um, that brings me meaning and fulfillment. It makes me feel like, you know, I'm actually adding something into this world. Um, and beyond that, I think I'm like intensely curious. Um, so that shows up in the work as well. I get to constantly be stimulated by new things um, and see the cross-pollination between things from different industries and different um, situations. So it feeds my curiosity constantly. Um, in fact, it's almost the other way. It's not even like curiosity. I'm just like choking on information constantly, and I kind of, I kind of like that. So we get to pick one that we want to hear more about, and I think the, the, for me, this last one is interesting. It's like the curiosity because it, it is in so many people here to think, um, and it is something that so many people lose at the same time uh, when they grow up. So, what is it that fuels this? curiosity what is it you do what do practices look like can mm -hmm. you tell us a bit more about it hmm. so um let's see well i think as with many things it kind of goes back to like um childhood stuff like i was uh still am an only child um so i had a lot of time on, on my own and that meant i was reading constantly and i was imagining like different worlds and i'd be like coloring or, you know, in the creek or, you know, on some occasions playing with, with friends, but had a really active imagination. So I feel like curiosity is kind of like the other side of imagination. It's like um, you kind of seek out the stimulus because you can kind of see the interconnection of things. And so um, how it kind of shows up in my work um, is that, you know, when we're working in a particular industry or with a particular client, um, sometimes we get asked like, oh, you know, we're a a wealth management company, you know, show me your portfolio of, you know, 20 wealth management companies that you've worked with or, or branded before. And, um, you know, we don't have that because we don't, we don't focus on that area. And so what I'm able to show them is that what we're really good at doing is, um, you know, quickly doing a deep dive uh, and learning as much as we need to learn about a particular industry or a particular approach. But in fact, there's so many advantages um, to being the outsider, right? Um, and there's so many advantages to bringing in an outside perspective, right, of not walking in with complete, like, you know, ignorance and naivety, but understanding enough of the frameworks that somebody's working with, but then having this sort of, like, outsider perspective, um, you know, to bring new ideas and bring some fresh thinking. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to this kind of childhood curiosity as well, right, because there was a sense of belonging that I always kind of struggled with, um, you know, A, being an only child, and B, you know, the neighborhoods that I grew up in. So I think um, feeling like a bit of an outsider was actually, you know, something that was difficult growing up as a child, but later on actually turned into a bit of an advantage because if you're um, constantly the outsider in situations and engagements, that's not actually a bad thing because you're always bringing a unique perspective. Um, and as long as, um, you know, what am I trying to say here? I guess as long as you appreciate... Um, as long as you appreciate what learning can bring you and you've got like a, uh, an interest in or a passion for ongoing learning, um, you know, then it can work quite well. 
Um, otherwise, I think if you were an outsider and you weren't curious and you didn't have an appreciation for learning, uh, then it would actually be a really lonely place to sit. When does an outsider become an insider? At what point, if you're working together with a uh, company, do you say, ah, I know too much. My time here is up. When does an outsider become an insider? Um, so I think, I think with time, like, um, that would happen in any role, in any company, frankly. It's like, you know, like biologically we're optimized for that actually, right? Is that, you know, I've built a company, I've got, you know, 14 somewhat people around me. And you would think that after a couple of years, even within that framework, we would be like, okay, well, there's a pattern. We're like, we're agency people now and we're in a community of agencies and we're in a particular community in Vancouver. Um, and you know, there'd be, there'd be patterns that would start showing up. Um, but thankfully, um, you know, and there's good and bads to this. I think I've done a lot to make sure that, um, you know, our organization in particular is in a constant state of rejuvenation. Like in the past 12 months out of our 14 staff, um, actually probably the past two years, uh, out of 14 staff, we've probably had like 80% of them turnover. Um, and that's been quite regular actually. Like we're, you know, been in business for seven years and we're on this sort of two-year cycle of kind of rebooting and reinventing and rebooting and reinventing. And on the one hand, it's kind of like it can be potentially exhausting um, because there's no normal, right? And we're never in that sort of uh, pattern of saying, okay, you know, the factory's working, the conveyor belt's uh, operating smoothly, and off we go. And I think this is a philosophy that actually uh, I wasn't able to put words to until... Uh, I read something of Jeff Bezos on uh, Amazon, and he said something along the lines of like always being a day one company, and he said that since he started you know Amazon decades ago, that he's never wanted um, day two to arrive. The idea that like okay we've solved them some things let's put them to the side and we don't need to worry about them again, but in fact every day to attack the company, attack the work, attack the day, um, looking for ways to improve, to optimize, to innovate, um, so you're always in a state of day one. And I can't say that um, I've necessarily been like that 365 days of the year, uh, but I will say that you know every year there's a couple of occasions where we have like our real sort of skyrocket come to Jesus moment and say, you know, what are we doing? What's the best way we could be doing this? Um, am I in the right role? You know, am I leading the people in the right way? Uh, and then that's, you know, led to us actually realigning things uh, quite, quite frequently. And how, how do you then deal with your own and your staff's energy? Because this perpetual restless and this constant seeking for better and almost the lack of solidification of certain processes or whatever it is that you can solidify... Um, can be very, very exhausting. So, and for some people, maybe also too stressful. I see in some organization, people just can't handle the constant change. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? So, I mean, I think we've handled it well and we've handled it badly. Um, so there's been periods of time where, um, you know, our vision and values weren't clear, frankly, uh, weren't well communicated with the staff. There wasn't a lot of alignment in the group of what we're headed towards or if there's a period of intense stress or, uh, frankly, just intense work of knowing how long that's going to last for or what's kind of coming on the other side of that and not enough internal communication. So there was an occasion last year where, you know, 
couple of our you know, really good designers, uh, visual designers, um, you know, successfully burned out. Uh, and it was because there was a period of intensity in working with some clients, and it was prolonged for a while. And we were, you know, the entire team was actually just, you know, was in a real mode of like, um, as soon as something was done and launched, you know, onto the next thing. So not even pausing to reflect or even celebrate some of the successes. Um, and after many months of that, um, you know, first one designer kind of had the conversation with me and said, you know, I'm not sure if this role in particular is what I'm here for. Uh, so that was actually a good conversation because this person in particular uh, realized that actually it wasn't necessarily digital design, UX, UI that he was after. He just loved typography, right? And he wanted to like just, you know, he got really clear that he does not like digital design. I'm here for typography. So it was good. You know, we helped him kind of head in that direction. Uh, and the other designer who was actually our lead designer, um, she came in and said, you know, um, I know I like visual design. I know I want to do this. I just don't want to do it in this way anymore. Like I need, I need more time. Um, so she, you know, uh, backed off and we moved her out of the team as well. So I think that was a period of time where we probably could have handled it a bit better. Um, now what's been emerging lately uh, is one of our team members introduced the idea of um, level 10 meetings. This is something uh, out of Traction, um, the book Traction. And what actually came up out of the team just recently, actually before, um, you know, me coming to Amsterdam uh, just on this trip, um, they were sitting in one of these level 10 meetings and they said, actually, you know, we're not clear enough on our vision. We're not clear enough on our values. And that actually emerged from the team where there was like a general understanding of these things, but it wasn't really well embraced. And, and just explain to us, what is a level 10 meeting? Um, so without getting into sort of the intricacies of the agenda, it's, it's essentially a highly structured meeting that allows you to, um, allows the team collectively to unearth um, issues that they're dealing with, uh, prioritize those issues together, um, come up with some next actions on some of those issues to take, and then out of the, even those next actions to, um, you know, highlight a few points to work on uh, until the next meeting, which okay. might be next week or in a few weeks or whenever it is. But the point is that that meeting is never just meant to be like an open-ended conversation. And then, you know, uh, for us, typically a good meeting is, you know, let's have a long conversation at the end. If we walk away with a couple of action items, we, we call that good. But a level 10 meeting actually just introduces a greater level of accountability so that each meeting is actually building on the previous one. And it kind of puts you into this continuous flow mm -hmm. of improvement and accountability. So this was implemented by one of our team members. Um, and then as the team was sitting and talking collectively, um, you know, for me as like, you know, company's founder, it was um, kind of gratifying and uh, a little stressful uh, to watch this happen. But they just quickly unearthed that um, they weren't actually that clear on vision. And again, you know, we've had a lot of turnover recently and they weren't hyper clear on what our collective value system is. Generally, they kind of guessed at a few of the values and generally kind of felt a certain way, but they weren't hyper clear. So that actually showed up as uh, an issue that we need to do something about, right? But at least this time, we had a framework and a metric in place so that as things are changing, um, we, can, we can actually tease out those weak signals uh, rather, rather than not giving them an outlet. Um, so I think that, uh, to answer your original question of like, how do you um, deal with change when it's so constant and it's just you know, prevailing and it's ongoing, um, I think you need some sort of system in place to listen to those weak signals. Yeah. Right, because and I, have very clear goalposts as to where you're running and how you're running that direction, your strategy and your values. Yeah, yeah, very clear. And that's where um, that's another place where this this whole model of um, bipolar focus has actually been really really helpful. 
um, because we've been running um, as an agile team for years now. And um, I think, you know, incorrectly, agile is seen as, um, you know, driving down a highway at 100 kilometers an hour, but with like no visibility. Um, but that's obviously not a good idea. Um, so, you know, even with clients, even internally, communicating the idea of bipolar focus has been really, really helpful. The idea that we spend a lot of time articulating the vision and, and what our, you know, what our future looks like and what we want the future to be, and then getting hyper clear about today and tomorrow. Like, what are we working on? What are we doing today to get there? Um, and, and prior to that, there would be a lot of, um, you know, midterm planning, right? There would be a lot of, let's sit and figure out what we're going to do this year and set goals for the year. And, you know, we did company retreats years ago and we had all these well-intentioned plans. And by the time we, re we would revisit the plan six or seven months later, it'd be like, oh God, this is like, we're not even close to what this plan was. So now the whole thing felt irrelevant. Um, so one way that's been actually really helpful as a communication tool has been that, that bipolar focus model. Is there a... Is there a dream project for you? Um, not specifically, but like there's a dream client. Who's right? the dream client? Um, a dream client is a venture-funded um, social impact startup, right? Somebody that's starting with like a clean slate has some sort of validation on some you know world-changing, world-improving idea, um, and they've got the confidence of some investors and. They may be a year or two into their life, and having gotten some validation and traction, they're now ready to like really go to the next level, uh, but need to get hyper clear on you know their purpose, their vision, values internally, um, and develop a brand strategy so that they can connect you know their purpose to their audiences and their goals and their their public markets. If a client like that comes along, that is like ten of, out of ten for us. I would I would pitch the shit out of that client. <laughs> And, and and why is that what makes that I mean I see your your eyes light up yeah. and you you start smiling about the idea of having this this client yeah. what 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 is that fire within um, well we had these conversations early on when we started the agency it was like um, as with you know so many uh, creative or digital agencies early on it was like well let's chase um, you know some sort of like shoe campaign with Nike right because that logo will look nice on the website or Let's do something else with one of you know these big brands, and you know kind of sat with it for a little while and, and kind of thought about it and said you know we could spend like a thousand hours of billable time working on a Nike shoe campaign and sure the money might be good, but the work is going to be ultimately forgettable, right? Because that campaign can come and go and it might be cool for a time, but did it fundamentally change anybody's life or did it change Nike's destiny? No, that's not you know not likely. Um, but we spend a thousand hours of time with the right company that is either just launching or in that sort of mode of transformation. And we could fundamentally change their destiny. And as a result of that, um, change their relationship with the people that they're going to interact with. So this type of client I'm describing, this like, you know, this, this funded sort of um, social enterprise, um, you know, I kind of light up about it because um, to get into a company like that, um, again, response to that whole meaningfulness thing, because if we can change, if we can like um, 10x their impact and 10x the effectiveness of their communications, of their brand and their messaging with their markets, um, that means we're making them more effective and that means we're kind of fulfilling our purpose. Yeah. I'm like, I'm waving my arms around a lot, so hopefully the gestures are getting captured in the We'll hear the, the wind in the uh, recording.
Is that, and what about governments? Can governments do that? Oh, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> groan immediately. Um, I'm sure they could, uh, maybe in smaller countries. Um, I was looking at uh, Dominica recently, uh, not Dominican Republic, but Dominica, because um, I was thinking about like large companies, right, that are hundreds of millions of dollars, and it just got me thinking actually. Um, you know, are there actually are there countries like little you know micro societies that are about the same size as some of the you know unicorns or not even unicorns, frankly, just you know large cap companies in Canada or the United States? And so I thought you know there's a there's probably a few closed systems that could do that, um, but it's difficult. Um, and I know that in North America, especially, um, our governments are slow to change. There's a system of uh, bureaucracy. And there's this kind of cathedral-like um, inertia that makes it really difficult for anybody to kind of make, you know, dynamic, dynamic decisions. And it trickles all the way down. Like, I had some interaction with a political party recently, and it was, it was similar there. It was just a culture of inertia. It was a culture of, um, you know, maintaining fluency with the way things are done at all costs, right? So um, there's a recognized way to communicate, a recognized way to operate, and... Um, even the way the org structures are set up, and because those job titles are so um, long-lived, they've been around forever, and the way departments are set up have been around forever, there's a fluency there where they can't even, like, if you try to do anything to that structure, they, they, just, they just can't even digest that, right? Uh, they just don't even know how to hire for those roles because those roles don't exist in other groups or other parties or in the political realm at different levels. Um, so I think it's, I think it's pretty difficult there and I don't know, maybe the grass is always greener, but I tend to look towards the Netherlands and, you know, constantly inspired when I see some sort of like innovative decision or program, you know, being introduced or, or something and it, and it seems pretty, pretty great. Uh, but maybe that has to do with the size of country, right? Maybe it's these small, uh, smaller nations that can be a bit more nimble, right? I mean, same thing with Denmark. I see, I see them doing some interesting things and, Again, you know, maybe it's because you've got a small contained population and you can actually perhaps move a bit more quickly. And um, we talked about your dream client. Um, what is your dream for and your vision for the company or, or what do you want to achieve in the next decade, if you will? Yeah. Um, so as much as this thing um, is meant to be constantly in a state of flux and a constantly in a state of change, um, I also don't want it to be like a lifestyle business where like, you know, I have to be there, you know, all the time in the midst of things trying to make things happen. So um, I've sometimes referred to it, you know, uh, affectionately as like the what's next machine. Um, so I want Skyrocket to be the what's next machine, right? So what I want the company to be good at is I want it to be good at um, transformation and change. Um, and within that is a realization that the company itself has to transform and change constantly. So if I can somehow kind of close the loop there, um, I guess I'm trying to invent like a, what do you call it? Um, one of those alchemist inventions. It's like the, you know, the, the perpetual energy machine. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Where change and transformation just feeds into itself. Um, it sounds like an impossible task, but I don't think it is. But um, that would be the goal, would be that... Skyrocket is self-sufficient, and it's just amazing at change and transformation through brand strategy and communications. And it's able to operate quite independently of me so that I can actually come up with new ideas and perhaps take advantage of the what's next machine myself. The perpetual.
Petu Immobile, what's next machine? Yes. I like that. <laughs> oh, I think the weather is changing. The weather is changing. I hear a lightning round coming, which means uh, we're down to the last two questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first one is whether you have any recommendations for anyone listening to this, uh, maybe an inspiring book or piece of music or film or museum or TV show, anything that you feel has inspired you. Uh, in life or maybe something recent that you're really into? Um, I've got to actually um, uh, reference like um, Noah Yuval Harari here uh, again. And I know he's written other books since then, so this is going to date this conversation a little bit. But I'm still raving about Sapiens. I haven't mm -hmm. even moved on to the new stuff yet. Uh, in fact, um, I read Sapiens again. <laughs> rather than pick up the new book. It's a very dense uh, book. Uh, you have to kind of... Yeah, um, but it's, it's fantastic. And I kind of feel like, you know, we're constantly thinking about um, where to go next and what to do with humanity. And um, so important to that conversation is an understanding of where we come from and why we're here. And the best um, metaphor that I got out of that book, and I think it's actually right in the beginning, like it's in the first third somewhere, was in regards to humanity. And... It, uh, it put me at ease with so much of, frankly, my own problems, humanity's problems, and the world and the way things are going on. Um, not to say that there was a solution within that, but just understanding who we are and where we come from. And where it came from was this. There's a couple of things he says in Sapiens. Um, one is that, you know, by some accident of, you know, uh, evolution, um, we vaulted to the top of the food chain in under 70,000 years. And in the terms of evolution, that's unheard of, right? Every other species that sits in any role or any position in the food chain took millions of years arriving there. So their genetics, their environment, their relationship with their systems evolved such that uh, once they arrived there, they're the master of that domain and they're quite comfortable there. So the fact that we vaulted to the top of the food chain and became an apex predator in under 70,000 years means that humans biologically are actually uncomfortable with each other and their environment because we didn't have the millions of years of maturity to arrive and actually be the master of our domain where we are. We vaulted here in 70,000 years, so uh, to some extent, the amygdala is constantly freaking out because we haven't had time to mature into this role and to mature into our position on the planet. And so that places humanity into this position of being a constant fear-based animal. And it's the imposter syndrome, not at a personal <laughs> level, but at a species level. At a species level. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be here. Yeah. And so perhaps now suddenly, you know, the motivations for uh, war and conflict and all these sorts of things are contextual, right? And they're biological. It's not just bad people doing bad things. And the other one was this idea of, um, you know, human beings um, being like molten glass. And he says, we come out of the womb like molten glass. And that was such a beautiful metaphor as well, because when you think about it, that's true, right? Um, humans kind of carry on this gestation period long after we're born, because every other animal on the planet, shortly after it's hatched or born, within a day or two, it's doing what it was put there to do, right? When, when, it, like, when a giraffe is born, right? Within a day, it's out doing like giraffe shit on the Serengeti, right? And, and humans are useless for years, right? So, you know, we tend to think of this modern version of, uh, of humans as kind of being the most advanced. But in the book, he describes that actually there was a mutation that caused a certain portion of the female of the species to start standing a bit more erect. So it wasn't that 
it was more advanced, it was just a mutation, st stood a bit more erect. Now suddenly, survival rate for these large-headed humans was a little bit higher, right? F further to that, it was the ones that actually gave birth prematurely that had the highest survival rate, right? So now humanity is actually the product of this, you know, this, this genetic mutation that caused premature births, right? So all of humanity is actually a premature birth or else we wouldn't survive. So in fact, we continue gestating outside the womb. And now it allowed you know, me to actually think back on childhood and everything and all these things that sometimes are looked upon as kind of these weird kind of soft things. Like it doesn't matter who you talk to as a founder of a company or CEO, you ask them about their childhood, they will roll their eyes a little bit and they're like, oh yeah, that's kind of that soft, mushy stuff you want to talk about. But when you think of it in terms of the fact that like, actually, no, we want to talk about your gestation period that was from like zero to 10 years old, right? And like molten glass, you came out of the womb and you were influenced by your environment, you were influenced by the things around you. And over time, that glass crystallized and it hardened. And now that glass is through which you refract your experience and that's your experience of the world. Now suddenly it's so much more relevant to how you look at things and what actually drives you. And it's not to say that that glass is fixed. You know, of course that can change and mold over time. But much like glass, think about how much heat and pressure has to be applied for it to ever, ever change again. Um, so these two sort of metaphors that came out of that book that for me have actually, and again, I work on brand strategy, so, so often we're talking about purpose and we're talking to founders about purpose and where that comes from. It changed my perspective of looking at humans and actually brought me, I think, a bit more comfort in the way I look at people and the way I look at myself. And a final question. Um, what uh, is a daily practice or a ritual that you regularly do that helps you get the most out of yourself and your days? Um, I, think, um, I think just having a regiment itself is, is probably the most important thing for me. It's like I'm a pretty scattershot individual. Uh, left to my own devices, I think every day would be chaos. Uh, so I work pretty hard to like just regiment myself. Um, so having a regiment itself is like the first thing. Second to that, um, I will do one of two things, either go for a run or go to the gym every morning. Some amount of physical activity to get my endorphins pumping uh, utterly changes my day, my outlook, my positivity, everything. I mean, it's going to sound cliche, but uh, I'm sure you can get some of that through meditation or other practices. But for me, it's like if I can get into physical activity first thing in the morning, my day is fundamentally different. Thank you very much, Mo. Thanks, Mo. Thank you guys. That was fun. This has been the Creative Leadership Podcast. My name is Rod. And my name is Mark. Thanks for tuning in. 